Do you remember those days where you could get free samples in shops? And I'm not talking about hand sanitizer. Those days where you would uh, perhaps walk into a supermarket and there'd be that person on that tiny table with a selection of chocolates perhaps for you to try. Or you go to the bakery and there's a selection of different breads and dips and you could, you could taste the different things. Uh, we lived for a period of time near Windsor and there was, there was a particular point on a Saturday morning where if you timed it just right, you could taste all the different wares of the shops and the restaurants. Round about midday, as you were going through the old train station, there's a guy who was always out there with this massive platter of succulent, melt-in-the-mouth spare ribs from the steakhouse. So you walk past, take one of those, go around the corner, and there's continental bread that's normally available against someone else standing out there with a platter so you could taste it. You go down the hill, there's a fudge shop. They're giving away, no surprises there, free fudge all these little foretastes that you could, you could try. Now, maybe your mouths are watering now. You're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. Yeah, I can see Rich is nodding. But those, those foretastes, it was a great place to be, Windsor, on a Saturday morning. Last week, we were considering, we spent some time considering the glories of what it is that lies ahead. The glories of the new creation. At a time where heaven touches earth where the glory of God fills the whole earth just as the waters cover the sea. Now the life, the goodness of God is seen, it is manifest completely over the whole earth. Now Windsor was a great place to be to taste some of those culinary delights. Wouldn't it be great if there was somewhere that we could go, there was some way that we could experience, we could get that foretaste of the new creation? The glory of what lies ahead. Just, just a little foretaste of that now. And in many ways, that's what the temple was. The temple in Jerusalem was this sacred place, this place where heaven touched earth. It's a place where God's presence was manifest. We read of his presence filling the temple. Now, it's not filling the whole earth at this point in time. It's a foretaste of what is to come. And if the foretaste of succulent spare ribs, if that fills you with delight, then how much more so should be that delight of a foretaste of the glory of God? And so the psalmist declares, Psalm 122, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. To the house of the Lord, to the temple, to this place where heaven touches earth. To get this glimpse, this foretaste of a greater glory. And yet in the New Testament, as we have just been reading, 1 Peter chapter 2. That temple is the church. The church, the body of Christ, is the place where God has chosen at this point in time for heaven to touch earth. Us. Us as, as the people of God. We are the place where the life of the future breaks into and is lived out in the present. And at the start of this year, we're we're taking some time to refocus, to reorientate ourselves. So much has happened over the last 10 months. We've had to learn new ways of doing things. Things look different. We've had to learn new skills. And it's crucial, perhaps more so this time than at other times, 
that we spend that time refocusing. And what is it that God has called us to do? There are so many distractions around us. Where is our focus to be? So this morning, we're going to spend some time uh, focusing, reminding ourselves of God's purpose for his church. Our vision statement says, we are the place of God's presence, living and expanding for his glory. And we're going to be looking at that. We're going to be looking at something from where that vision statement comes from as we focus in here on 1 Peter chapter 2. Remind ourselves from this passage who we are in Christ. Not just individually, but collectively, who we are in Christ as a church and what is it that God has called us to. As I do have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're beginning verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So as you come to him, uh, we see from the verse earlier, that, that's continuing this reference to the Lord. As we come to the Lord, as we come to Jesus, Jesus is this living stone rejected by humans. He was crucified, killed, but chosen by God and precious to him. Uh, evidence of God's choosing of Christ is this resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the Father's chosen means by which heaven and earth touch. Through his death on the cross. And Jesus brings this peace as we considered at Christmas. Peace, wholeness, completeness, reconciliation between heaven and earth. Oh, Jesus himself is the one who's fully God, fully man. That in him he's described as the temple. He is the place where heaven touches earth. And yet as we come to him as the church, we are incorporated into that building. As you come to him, the living stone you also, like living stones, you're being built into this spiritual house. Now, I rejoice greatly when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This temple, this place where heaven touches earth. Who are we in Christ? We're the temple of the living God. And then the image in verse 5, it moves from uh, the temple to the ministry of the temple. From who we are to what it is that we're called to, we're called to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? What does it mean to offer these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God? What does priestly worship look like? Well, this is, gets unpacked somewhat later in the chapter verses that we're not looking at. But in verse 11, we see... Peter unpacking, applying the theology of what has just been written here and what it means in everyday life and living. So verse 12 of chapter 2, if you look ahead, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And the letter then goes on to give some specific examples of how that works out in areas of citizenship, in work, in marriage. There was a guy I knew, he became a Christian uh, later on in his life, and uh, he was asked by someone, what is it that led you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ? It's easy, he said. When my wife became a Christian, she stopped being abusive to me. And so I thought, there must be something in this. 
See, he experienced something of a foretaste of the glory of what was ahead, the, the change and transformation in the life of his wife. And this temple imagery then is worked out in our daily lives, in the communities in which we live. The presence of God, the glory of God, seen in the life of his people. Now, at this time as we gather, our Sunday services look somewhat different to what we're used to. Government guidelines say that we shouldn't be singing together congregationally as a church. So at this time, we're not doing that. But any of you who were part of a church during the mid to late 90s, early noughties, you probably heard that mantra that maybe seemed a bit overused, worship is more than singing. Perhaps now is a good time to remind ourselves of that. See, our singing at this point on time is on hold. But other aspects of our corporate worship aren't. We are still able to offer these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living as the people of God, living the life of the kingdom now here on earth. And that is what we're called to be, to be the place of God's presence. That is, we are brought together as the church, as we share one another's lives. We should be experiencing something of the new creation. To use language from earlier in 1 Peter, this sincere love for one another, loving one another, another deeply from the heart, that should be seen, it should be manifest among us. It should be pouring out into the communities around us. A love that reaches out. And yet notice, we are built and we are transformed. How? Well, it's all by Christ. Verse 4, it's as we come to him, the living stone. And verse 5, we offer these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now in verse 6, uh, we get this series of Old Testament quotations, which is drawing together and what's been said so far. And in some ways, this is a bit like sort of a biblical version of double. That's a reference for the Gatwoods and for Phil Warner. So double is a, it's a card game where you've got lots of images on these different cards, and you have to look carefully to see where the matching images are. It's a bit like double here. Now, what's the match? What's the link between these verses? As we see, as we look at them, there's this link of... This repetition of the theme of a stone, of a rock. But there's something more that I think is also going on here. And the more I've come to look at the Bible and study the Bible and the Old Testament, the more I've become convinced that there's, there's more going on in these Old Testament quotations. It's not just simply a proof text where someone's saying, I'm saying something and, you know, the Bible says it elsewhere. Now, these Old Testament quotations, and think about them. When you come across Old Testament quotations, view them as doorways. See, these are doorways that invite us to step into the Old Testament world and then to have a look around and to see what's there and to take that with us, and it enriches our understanding. So we're going to do that for a few moments this morning. We're going to go through uh, these verses, and we're going to step through that door. We're going to have a look around and see what we see. I need to skip on because I forgot to move the slides on. We're going to begin then uh, with verse 6. Verse 6, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put 
to shame. So this is from Isaiah 28:16. You may see that in your footnotes on the Bible. Uh, if you want, you can turn over to Isaiah 28:16. We're going to step through this doorway, and as we step through the doorway, what do we see? What is the context of this passage? Well, the prophet is speaking to the rulers of Israel. Now they are they've they've turned away from God, and the message of the uh, curse of Deuteronomy that we've touched on a few times, God saying, you know, when you disobey me, these things are going to come on you. One of those things being foreign nations are going to come and invade you. And this warning has come to the people. Now, the leaders say, no, we're, we're secure, we're fine. We've got it sorted out. We've got our plans. And it's described in verse 15 of Isaiah 28 of this boast. We've entered into a covenant with death, with a realm of dead. We've made an agreement. So when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. It's likely a reference to some sort of alliance they've made with Egypt so that they can be protected against any foreign invading armies. And the prophet describes this alliance with Egypt actually as a covenant with death. There is not going to be any help to you. This security in trusting in yourselves and in your own plans rather than turning to the Lord is going to lead to your destruction. And then we get these verses that's in our quotation about the Lord laying in Zion this tested cornerstone, a sure foundation And whoever relies on him, they're not going to be stricken with panic. They're not going to be put to shame. And the point is that the Lord is the means of security. He is the means of hope. They trust in themselves and their plans is going to lead to death and destruction. To trust in the Lord, well then, you're never put to shame. Okay, our second passage then. Let's step through the door of this one. This is from Psalm 118. The stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. So as we step through this doorway, what is it that we see? Well, this is a psalm that speaks of the Lord's deliverance. It's likely spoken by some ruler of the people of Israel. And they declare earlier in the psalm, so Psalm 118 verse 8 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Uh, The usual means of a ruler's security would be military power, would be those political alliances, and yet here they're seen as worthless. Refuge is to be found in the Lord. He is the means of deliverance. So already, do you see some of that connection between what's been said in Psalm 118 and what was said earlier in Isaiah? Just playing it out. And then we come across this metaphor in Psalm 118. The stone the builders has rejected, it has become the cornerstone. So possibly an image of a ruler despised in the eyes of others. They don't have military might. They don't have these strong alliances. They're not a good candidate for building a secure nation. If you were building a building and they were a stone, you would not use them. You would push them to one side. And yet... This is where God's deliverance is to be found. In weakness, God's power is made perfect. And this is a psalm that Jesus himself taught found fulfillment in him. He is a fulfillment of this psalm, the one who's despised and rejected, who's crucified in weakness, and yet who lives according to God's power. 
And so Jesus becomes the cornerstone, the Father's means of reconciling all things. Finally then, the third quotation, that comes to us again from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. So once again, let's step through this doorway. Let's have a look around. Let's see what we see and what is it teaching us. Well, Isaiah 8, this is 7 and 8, they speak of King Ahaz. So King Ahaz at the time, he's done exactly what Psalm 118 counsels against. He has put his hope uh, in princes in a military alliance with Assyria. And the prophet foretells that Assyria isn't going to come as a means of deliverance. They're going to come as a means of destruction. Because deliverance comes from the Lord. And then, working through, we come to this quotation. uh, That the Lord is going to be this holy place. He's going to be the sanctuary. But he's also going to be a place of stumbling. See, the same thing can be received in two different ways. The speed bumps here that are just outside the school. Speed bumps are there for the safety of children, for their protection, their preservation. And yeah, I'm sure you've probably heard a car that takes those speed bumps just a little bit too fast. The horrible crunch noise it makes at the bottom of that car. Yeah? So these speed bumps, they're there for preservation. They can also become an object of destruction. If you are hitting those... uh, definitely going at too fast a speed it's going to completely ruin your car the same thing received in two different ways and god is both the sanctuary he's also described as a stone of stumbling and when we pull all these threads together from these different passages what is the unifying message and the unifying message is this to trust in the lord is salvation to trust in anything else is destruction There's no such thing as a neutral response to Christ. Just as you can't have a neutral response to air. Air is God's chosen means by which we breathe. You can't just say, air is not for me, but I'm going to keep on breathing. When something is the chosen means by which life is given, it means then to embrace it is to have life, to reject it or to just ignore it, is to not have life. To trust in the Lord is salvation. To trust in anything else is ultimately destruction. And to trust in the Lord is transformation. To trust in anything else is deformation. And that's why it's when we come to Christ that we're built up. We're built up into this spiritual house. It's only in him, it's only through him that we can experience the life of God's kingdom now. It's only in him and through him that we can live out something of the life of God's kingdom now. Not in all its completeness, but the only way that we can be the people of God's presence is through Christ. And so it means the glory doesn't go to us in anything. It goes to God. We are a people who have been changed and transformed. We are a people who are being changed and transformed because of the grace and mercy of God towards us in Christ. Now that is how we become the people of God. 
That's how we live as the people of God. That's how we're to be known as the people of God. So back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, those who've come to Christ, those who have been built up into this, into this temple, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That we are to be those who declare God's praises. This is language that is echoing from Isaiah 43, verse 21, which is speaking of declaring God's great and uh, mighty acts of deliverance. We're just going to draw again a few more threads together this time from within 1 Peter itself. If you just flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3, later in 1 Peter 3, we're told verse 15, somewhat of a famous verse, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And traditionally, this is often used as saying, you know, we need to be able to give a reason defense of the gospel. Something called apologetics, that the word apologetics comes from here, uh, this thing of giving an answer, giving a defense. And so it's thought, you know, in terms of giving answers to questions like, if God is good, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And it's good to be able to do that. I think that's, that's a legitimate thing for us to do. It is helpful, but I don't think that's the main focus of what is, is being brought out here in the letter of 1 Peter. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What is the reason for the hope that we have? Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is the reason that we have for our hope? It's the mercy of God and his mighty act of deliverance through Jesus Christ. And that's what gets unpacked then in verse 10 of chapter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the mercy of God. It's his mighty act of deliverance through Jesus Christ. And so this is the message that we are to be proclaiming. What's it mean to declare the praises of God? It's to tell the story of Christ. It is to proclaim the message of the gospel, how despite our unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. Now we rebelled, but God redeemed. That Jesus Christ, God incarnate, he bore within himself, on his body, our sins on the cross so that we might die to sins, that we might live for righteousness. That through Jesus Christ, we've been born into this living hope through his resurrection. And so Jesus is the reason for our hope. Jesus is the reason why anyone can have hope. He's the only reason for hope, as we've just read. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Now, I like repeating that to myself. It's a great truth to remind ourselves of, isn't it? The one who trusts in him. When we trust in Christ, we will never be put to shame. In the end, no regrets. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And so as God's people, we are called to declare God's praises. We are to proclaim the message of Christ to one another. We proclaim the message of Christ to one another because it is the means by which we are changed, we are transformed, that we are built up. And then we are to proclaim this message of Christ to the world. It's the only way that the world will know how they can experience, how they can share in that promise of new creation. For the forgiveness of sins, being born into this living hope, to have that internal inheritance. It's all about Christ, and that's why we need to keep the message of Christ at the front. Glory doesn't go to us, it goes to him. And last week, we were considering something about longing for the new creation. And yet, even now, at this point in time, we can experience something of the life of the new creation. We can show to others something of the life of the new creation, of the glories that lie ahead, because of what it is that Christ has done for us. I mean, just to conclude, um, something to share. As I was working through this passage, a challenge that came to me, uh, maybe it's a challenge for all of us. See, in those moments where I long for that better day, where I yearn for the glories of the new creation, the challenge for me was, well, then will I also yearn for the church? When I yearn for that foretaste, will I I direct that desire for that foretaste into a desire for the church and a desire to pray for the church? This desire to pray and to seek God that we would be all that God has made us to be. Now, of course, we won't be completely all that God has made us to be until we see Christ face to face. But there's ongoing change and transformation. We can be more than we are. As one of the encouragements in this letter, pretty much in all the New Testament letters, that we grow, not just individually, but together as a church, into who we already are in Christ. This is who you are. Grow in that. May that be worked out in your life. That it would be seen that that foretaste, the presence of God may manifest amongst his people. Not in accordance with our power and our ability, but because of of God's great mercy and his grace and his power through Jesus Christ. So what about us? What about you? Sharing in that challenge. When you desire, when you want that foretaste of the glories of what it is that lies ahead, now will you direct that desire into prayer for God's church? That we would eagerly seek God, that we would be the people that he has created us to be. To be the place of God's presence, living and expanding for his glory. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your mercy and grace towards us in Christ. Though that which we do not deserve, but it comes because of who you are. Though the purpose to which you have called us truly is, is staggering. It is beyond what our minds could comprehend. Lord, help us to, to see, to, to understand what it is that you have called us, what it is you have called your church to in Christ. Lord, and that we may walk in that in accordance with your abundant and glorious provision towards us in Christ, that we may be those who, who proclaim the message of Christ one to another, but recognizing that he is the only reason for our hope, that he is the only means by which we are changed and transformed. And then to proclaim also this message to the world. Now for Christ is the only reason for hope. But it is only through him that we are reconciled with you. It is only through him that we can share in the new creation. Or well, at the beginning of this year, as we seek to spend this time now refocusing, reorientating, as we go into a week of prayer very shortly, or we'll direct our hearts and our focus, not just individually, but together as a church or towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he would be seen, that he would be exalted, or that your presence would be known among your people, or that we would live in such a manner that, that it would expand uh, for your glory. Amen.